Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. My guest today is Carl Richards, uh, who is, uh, well, he describes himself as living somewhere between Utah and uh, New Zealand. Uh, he's the author of a couple of great books, including the One Page Financial Plan and The Behaviour Gap. Uh, he writes a, a regular column for the New York Times. Uh, he's actually a great guy. We spent the morning uh, debating humanity versus technology at a big conference here in Melbourne. Uh, but, uh, um, well, I, I, did I leave anything out, Carl? No, I can't. Thank you. Uh, You know, it's funny because when I was just describing you, I was actually just thinking about the conversation we were having about India because you've just come back from uh, from an amazing trip in Varanasi and places that I myself went to a couple of years ago. Yeah. It, it just sort of leaves you a bit speechless, doesn't it? Yeah. Super interesting to be that. I, I remember calling my wife and kids and saying, I don't know. Right? There's no way to describe what's going on here. But yeah, the speechlessness thing is really interesting. And it seems to be a common theme. Most people who go there seem to say the same thing, like, I don't know how to describe it. So it's, it's actually where we should send all professional speakers, I think. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> the Zen moment of actually not listen. having to say yeah, 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 for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So, um, you know, it, it's sort of interesting because you are both a, a certified financial advisor, but you're also somebody who's explored you know, quite a few different avenues of freedom and creativity and, you know, you've gone on a very different personal journey. Mm-hmm. And it, it's sort of this interesting time, I think, where um, th- the idea of being your own boss and entrepreneur has always been an, an option open to people. Uh, but now, because of the gig economy and, and fundamental changes in the economy, entrepreneurship is almost being thrust on a whole new generation who are sort of unsuspecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, do you, how do you manage that? Uh, how do you do financial planning for Uber drivers? Right, <laughs> or, right. or for anyone who wants to essentially now yeah. consider not having a normal job? Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, there's a couple of issues that are interesting there, right? First is how do you deal with it personally, right? How does someone who's in that situation deal with it and deal with the... What we may, I mean, often people think, in fact, I have friends and family that often say to me, like, how do you handle as much risk as you take professionally? Because you have no job. And I always am like, I, I actually, at first I didn't quite understand the question. I was like, what do you, because I view it the opposite. Because you feel busy, right? Yeah, and I have, I feel like <laughs> I have a thousand or a million bosses and not one. And I think that's less risky than having one. Yeah. You know, so I, I've never viewed it as particularly risky, but that, that chain, you know, that mental leap isn't normal for people. I mean, normally you think good, stable job. We've all been trained that way, right? Good, stable job, 401k, pension, you know, whatever. I'm going to be here forever. But that's, we all know that's just it's changing, right? I mean, my parents, probably my parents' generation, you, you got a job, you were there 30 years. Yeah. You know, my and in fact, being a professional was a step up from the normal job. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then my, I look at my kids and I don't know, they, they may never actually have a job, right? Like I've had multiple places. So there's that. And then the, the piece about financial planning for um, freelancers or entrepreneurs is really fascinating. I mean, I think one thing that you've got to deal with right away is um, uneven cash flow. Right. Most financial planning is built around steady cash flow, you know, and so dealing with uneven cash flow is a real challenge. Um, 
and uh, we can talk about that how you do it if you want to but dealing with uneven cash flow is one of the big challenges I think of, of um, yeah financial planning for entrepreneurs uh, do you think that people will think about wealth in the same way I, I mean does, does wealth be, wealth used to be the concept of if you're careful and you hoard your acorns, acorns and you, you have the right sort of allocations eventually you will be relatively wealthy at the end of your life Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're an entrepreneur, you either swing for the fences and you make crazy money, or, or, or you're kind of just in trouble. Yeah, or, or there's a third. I mean, what I was thinking when you asked that question around wealth is just, I, I'm not sure this is right, but I, maybe it's just a, a confirmation bias problem with me. Like I'm hanging <laughs> out with people that think this way, but I feel like, and I, I'm hopeful. There's a lot of conversations around, you know, like why am I. We got this whole thing backwards, right? Like I'm going to work from the time I'm 20 to the time I'm 60, and then maybe I'm going to retire and be completely done, done for 30 years. Like that model was more around, you know, you built during a time when you worked till you were 59 and you died at 63. Right. So you had four good years of golf. Yeah, and it was ne- <laughs> yeah, it was never even it was never a good idea. But it's particularly I think we're asking questions now, like. No, wait a second, I want to design, instead of trying to retire as soon as I can, why don't I design a life and a job that I enjoy, right? I'm contributing, I'm meaningful in the world, and, and I'm, I'm hopeful that I'm, I'm having a lot of conversations around that lately, where we're saying, hey, why? I mean, I have a friend, for instance, that um, he was a doctor, and he thought, hey, we've got this backwards. I don't want to work from the time my kids are young. So they had children maybe when they were in their early 30s, He's like, look, I, I'm going to work. That's my prime. That's the way everybody does it is it's their prime earning years. They figure, hey, we'll work until the kids are 12, and then I'll, I'll be able to slow down a little bit. At least I'll be home for dinner by right. then. And he said to me, look, by that time, I have no, nothing to come home to. Like, I have no relationship if they haven't known me at all. So they did it opposite. They said, look, I would much rather take, and they took a two-year sabbatical with their kids and traveled around the United States in an RV and homeschooled their kids. And they, they purposely did that. And then they thought, you know, that may mean I need to work till I'm 70. But that's okay because I love medicine anyway. Right. Right? But at least I'll be there for the, that age. So I'm not saying that's important. I'm saying asking that question is important. Right? And I'm hopeful that more and more people are asking just a big why question. Like, why am I doing this? This, this is an interesting shift, you know, especially when I think when it comes to the financial planning industry, which is that it used to be just about trying to work out how much money you wanted at a certain point in time. But it, there seems to be a move towards more values and trying to work out how do you want to live, how do you want to design your life. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I joke about there's a secret society of real financial advisors that <laughs> they're focused on that. Right. Right. The, the industry is still, unfortunately, all about what piece of garbage product can we sell you yeah. and how much money can you save because the more money you save, the more we get paid. Right. And, and your risk assessment <clears throat> profile, which is yeah, yeah. Yeah, and your risk, an your exciting risk tolerance profile. Yeah. <laughs> so a real financial advisor, on the other hand, is saying, look, what, what do you really want? And can we kind of push on the boundaries of that definition and ask some questions that you have never even maybe even thought of? Like, are you sure you don't want to take that trip now? Why are you waiting till you're 59, right? What if we took it this year with the kids? Can we do that, right? So in like a real financial advisor's job to a large degree is encouraging people to sometimes to spend money. Like that was one of my biggest jobs was I had lots of clients who were thrifty, 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 thrifty their whole life. They got there and you couldn't break that habit. So we were encouraged, like go golfing. 
take the trip. Like, there's enough money. Oh, but what if it all goes away? There's enough. Go. You know? And I think that's, um, that's really exciting to me that that conversation's happening more often. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a big chunk of, of, I guess, what the original financial advisor used to do, which can just be so much better done now by automation, machine learning. I mean, are we essentially just going to see computers create as good a financial plan as any human being? Yeah, so elements of the financial plan for sure. You know, that's just simply true, right? Access to information, transactions, asset allocation based on 17 question risk tolerance questionnaire, all of those sorts of things that, that have been valuable in a financial advisor's life over the years can be done faster and cheaper and probably at least as well, and you can make the argument better. Yeah. The dilemma, of course, is what sits at the foundation of all those discussions is the big why, right? And and getting the why right, like leading clients down, people don't know what their goals are. Right? They don't know. They don't even like that word, goal. Um, <laughs> but even below goals would be values. Like, why are you doing this? Like, for me, after years of exploring it, it's time with my family, mainly outside, and serving in the community. That's that's why. If you don't understand that about me, your suggestions of investment products won't make sense. And I didn't even really know that about me until I went down that path and spent sort of on purpose trying to figure that out. And so I think that's a challenging conversation. As of yet, it's a challenging conversation to have with anybody, anything or buddy, but an empathetic, you know, trained person that knows how to lead those conversations. So in some ways, for any industry where human beings want to stay involved, you actually need people who have probably got psychological or anthropological training uh, rather yeah. than just being trained in, in, in actually the underlying math. Well, yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> I, I actually think you've... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking carefully about this. I may be wrong about this, but I, I think you have to have the technical piece nailed, right? So right. you've got to have the finance degree, we could say it that way, right? You don't necessarily have to degree in finance, but you got to have that nailed. But you've also got to be really good at the emotional intelligence side of this business. Now, the thing I'm wondering about is, do you really have to have the finance piece nailed? Like maybe you could just be really good at the emotional intelligence and you could have a, a, a partner or a technology partner that did right. all that. Maybe, but I do know that in the future, having the intelligence piece nailed is not going to be optional because that piece will be the other side. You know, the technical piece will be done faster, quicker, and maybe even better. What, what does that emotional intelligence piece look like? I mean, somebody uh, who is very good at understanding what someone's real goals are, like what, what kind of person are they exactly? How do you look yeah, for a person? You know like what's that? interesting is I never really considered myself... I, didn't, I never really considered myself super good at that until today. <laughs> until you said it today in our presentation. And then I looked back and realized I've had multiple people tell me, like, you have a really high... And I'm... Look, I don't like talking like this, but it's in, for this discussion, it will be important. I've had multiple people over the last maybe 10 years say, look, you have a really high emotional intelligence. I, I didn't even know what that meant. I was like, oh, yeah, whatever. Well, I, I just noticed that a lot of the stories you told involved people crying, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, just, yeah. I assume they're having some sort of personal cathartic moment. In, in Yeah, <laughs> but and I've had lots of roles <laughs> that way uh, professionally and on a volunteer basis where I've been in sort of counseling roles, right? Either in a religious setting or church setting or community setting. And um, so I didn't really know that that didn't come natural to everyone. You know how when you have a skill 
and it, it sort of comes naturally to you, and it may even be, you could maybe even use the word easy, right? It may be even easy for you. You tend to discount it, and you think everybody else can do it, so therefore it must not be valuable. And then you realize this is part of this thing called the imposter syndrome, right? We tend to discount things we're really good at because we think everybody must be good at them. And then you look around and you realize, well, that's interesting. Not everybody's good at it. So I think the answer to your question is, what does that person look like? It looks like a person who can listen carefully. It looks like a person who can empathize. At the very least, sympathize, but hopefully empathize. Looks like a person who can listen carefully enough to um, be emotionally moved, right, and affected, and 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 set aside the very natural tendency we have to try and fix, right, like fix a problem, and really instead just say that must be really hard, right? Like, I'm sorry that you went through that. Instead of saying, oh, guess what? I've got this product and this product and this product. We can just be with someone for a little bit. It feels like we're in this unfortunate transition time where a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing and, and, and the banks and the financial institutions are, uh, are trying to gather lots of data on people's behaviors and their objectives. And I remember I was signing up for a new bank recently in the United Kingdom and there was this like long, hour-long questionnaire. and It basically got to the point where I actually realized that they were, they were gearing up to sell me something. But at the very end, they realized I wasn't eligible. <laughs> right. And, then, and, 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 and there was an automated response that, well, we, we can't actually now give you that insurance product. Right. Uh, so on to something else. Right, right, right. So you sort of feel the lack of transparency in, in, in these sort of automated interactions. Yeah. We had, a, it's almost like a fishing game, right? You don't, you don't like blue, I've got green. Oh, hey, let's try yellow, right? Until <laughs> we land on something. And I'm suggesting that that feels a little bit like kind of arguing over whether we should take a plane, a train, or an automobile on a trip before we've decided where we're going. Right. And part of the job of a real financial advisor is to help you figure out where you want to go and 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 giving you permission to relax a bit because we know we don't know right so we're just kind of taking a a guess heading that direction learning new information making a new guess you know so the sort of Bainesian idea of iterate 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 and and to some extent that's not really Incompatible with with these new generation of robo advisors like Betterment and Wealthfront, um, because sure. I think you could be a, a, a millennial or a young person now and realize that there are all these cool features like you know um, automated har- um, tax harvest, tax loss harvesting, and stuff like that, which you wouldn't have normally got unless you were mega rich in the past. For sure, yeah. But you could still go to a human being to actually get it all explained to you. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, for sure, and I, I think. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Like, uh, there's all sorts of really interesting models emerging around those sorts of tools being built, and advisors saying, "Wait, wait, wait this is amazing!" <laughs> like, first of all, there's the, "Oh no, this is so scary." But the the more interesting ones to me, purely are the ones that are saying, "This is amazing." What does that mean? My job is, oh, I could. What if I just? What if I just charged? An, for instance, I'm seeing retainers. And hourly models, you know, instead of clearly commissions are going away, most places they're gone. Yeah. And asset-based fees are still a huge part of the industry, and I, I, it'll be interesting to see how that changes. But there's a lot of discussion now around different models where we say, look, my job really is to take you through a process, an experience, not that stuff, right? And and then we'll plug. In fact, Betterment has an institutional service that many advisors use Betterment for their clients. Right. Right. Nothing wrong with that at all. You're doing some interesting research at the moment um, that you mentioned when we were talking before around uh, uncertainty. And it feels like that's sort of the, the big backdrop uh, behind everything that's going on because uh, whether you're talking about disruption in business models and industries or changing 
political landscapes, people are feeling a greater sense of anxiety and uncertainty about the future. So what have you uncovered about how you deal with that? Yeah, no, I think it's... um, Now that you've diagnosed it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think uncertainty is super fascinating because we have a... Well, because certainty is a myth, right? That's why it's super fascinating. Is uncertainty, you could say uncertainty equals reality. Right. And it always has. But we have this, there's a, I don't know if there's a stronger natural desire than certainty, right? Like I've read that one of a baby's biggest fear is being dropped, like falling, is a really, really scary thing. Like, and I think that comes, I mean, it may come because, well, geez, it's going to hurt when I hit the ground. But I also think it comes from lack of control. Right. So we've equated uncertainty with lack of control. And, and in fact, it probably is true, right? Lack of control. But that lack of control and uncertainty can also be one of the most amazing. Like, ask anybody who surfs regularly, right? Paddling into a wave and putting yourself in the control of something else, right? Is an amazing experience. And so I think if we can get to a spot where we understand that that the range of potential outcomes in our lives is really, really wide, um, there are certain things we need to be doing, like we need to be working hard or whatever it is. Um, to a large degree, we need to be open to which way the wind is blowing us, right? Like, I, I don't know how I could have planned any of my career, like any of it. There, there's almost nothing that I could have plan. There's nothing I can tell my kids, like, you do this, and this will happen. Yeah, in, in fact, that's a good model, right? The co- complexity theory model, um, where you have a, a really, a, a, a simple model, you do this, you do X, you get Y, right? Direct response. A complicated model, you do X, it goes through a pretty a complicated thing, but you can understand it, and you get Y. A complex system, you do X, and you have no idea necessarily what's going to come out. No, it's, it's, it's an emergent order. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't necessarily, there is no, you don't know. And so what you can do is understand the system a little bit. So it becomes yeah. about the system. And then you see where the ambers are hot. Like, I love that idea. And you can blow on those ambers and say, oh, hey, I like that result. Let's see if we can blow on that result, right? And, follow, and it's if, not, So it's not a direct causal relationship, but you right. suspect there's a, there's a web of of actions and values that may have some contribution to that result. Yeah, and you sort of foster the environment under which that result can happen, knowing full well that you're not in control of it, and then it may change. And I think the rest of it's been a myth. Like, these are all stories we've told ourselves. So, so is certainty just a bedtime story that we tell ourselves in retrospect, you know, about, really think about it, the things that have happened today? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it, I love the old um, men make plans and God laughs. <laughs> right? The Yiddish proverb, right? Yeah. So, so I, 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 I the, that idea of, so what do we do, right? Like, and that's something I've been working on hard. Like, okay, well, that's all fine and good, but if you believe that, what do you do? And I think what we do is we number one, we embrace uncertainty. We just and we learn to, if you can't embrace it and you can't enjoy it, at least be okay with it. But I've learned to the opposite. Like many of the the recreational hobbies I do. The reason I love them is because the outcome is totally uncertain. Hmm. And uh, yeah, and I hope the outcome of life and death is not uncertain, but some of them, even that, like backcountry skiing or climbing or whatever, you don't know if you're going to get to where you want to go. But from a pragmatic standpoint, if, if you accept that your life is fundamentally uncertain and what could happen next could be wonderful or terrible, what, what do you do? Do you just 
do you, do you sort of set aside a, a kind of an emergency war fund of, of resources just to cover the fact that you could be living in a totally different place next month? Well, yeah, so if you mix what your first question about the gig economy and uncertainty yeah. together, yeah, yeah. So then we start talking about some really interesting portfolio strategy, which is, is fun to talk about. Let me just mention, though, embrace uncertainty. I think then you show up. Or you don't stop showing. Whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing, you show up. Right. And then, and then I love this, and I'm really trying harder to get good at this. You ask yourself, what is to be done next? Right? There, there, it's not what I'm like trying to nail down the inputs for the next 50 years. It's what, what do I do next? In what, in what context? So it could be like right now I'm trying to decide what the next big project I want to do. And I've got like 50 million different ideas. And I think now it's time for me just to be quiet for a little bit, not consume anymore, not ask anybody. I've done all that stuff, that's part of the complexity. What do you think, what do you think, what do you think? You know, checking everything, and then now it's just a time to go, this feels like the next step. I think I'll go down that path. Right. Right, I've retained optionality. Um, I've only made the decision to take a step. So you've showed up, you've committed to it. Showed up, I've said, what's to do next? Okay, I'm gonna take that step. I think I'll write a blog post about this. You know, the book idea, and we'll see what the, oh, the feedback was good. Oh, that landed with a thud. Okay, maybe I should go a different direction. The feedback was good. Okay, let's go that direction, right? And then the next step. So we're just sort of iterating our way into this thing rather than saying, I know what I'm going to be doing 20 years from now, right? It, it, now you sort of understand, like, nobody knew what they were going to do 20 years from now. And especially when we back all the way up to the gig economy. This is like the lean startup applied to your life. No, I think that's actually exactly right. That's exactly right. Like, it's complexity theory and the lean startup applied to your life. That's one of the, literally, the ideas of book titles <laughs> is the lean life, right? Yeah. And um, I've also called it the alpine-style life for people who are climbers. There's a whole model of climbing this way where you used to think expedition-style climbing was you put everything in the bag and all the other bags and all the porters, everything you could possibly need for three months up on the mountain. Hmm. And then there was a whole group of people and the, the sort of modern guys doing this are... Um, Steve House and Mark Twight, who's now retired, but these guys said, wait, what if we just put, you know, everything we think we need in the bag and then take stuff out until it's light enough <laughs> and then go do it in a single push. So now we're seeing people who used to take three weeks to climb a mountain doing it in 72 hours, right? And that's, that's sort of the same idea, so alpine style life. But I think it'd be fun if you want to to circle back to what does that mean practically with money? Yeah, I, def definitely. You know, and I think what that means. What, what, who, who, what does the Alpine investor do? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think what they do is you you realize like if there's a, a model called the uncertainty premium, right, or a certainty discount, either way. But I like thinking of it as an uncertainty premium. You, you clearly invest more conservatively. Um, and that's maybe not even the right way to think of it. I like to think of it as a barbell strategy. I call it the over-the-wall portfolio. Right. Right, where you may initially be, when we start out in the sort of entrepreneur space, you've got 100%, a little more than 100% of your money, right? It's because you've leveraged other people's money. You've got 150% of your money, all your human capital, your time, energy, everything is going up into, into the startup, right? And then one day if things go successfully, you'll wake up and you either have a positive cash flow business or maybe an exit and either way you finally got some excess capital time and energy and at, at, when you get that right whether it's in a big exit or it's just excess cash flow um, then you start to say well where should I invest that and I think in those spaces where you know you're going to just keep doing that right start a new business I'm going to invest in this idea I'm going to do a new project whatever the the investment side 
you, your life is a lot like a small cap stock, right? Yeah. So if your life is like a lot, you're 100% in small cap stocks, every excess piece of cash flow goes on the other side of the barbell, right? So it'd be certificates of deposit, cash, money market. And those things, I would call that the over the wall portfolio. Very liquid. Liquid, protected, and generate some cash and in that order. Sorry, it should be safe, liquid, and some cash flow if you can get it. Right? Right. In today's interest rate environment, you can't get much. Right. But you don't start trying to optimize that. This, I watch entrepreneurs do this all the time. They're like, they, the pile starts to get a little bigger. They just can't help themselves. Right? Yeah, yeah, no, we can't. And that's fine, but you've got to stop. Like, the pile starts getting bigger, and they go, oh, geez, I can't stand that that's not being used, right? Because we're sort of trained to optimize or maybe even maximize, even though I hate that term. But we're, we hate the idea of lazy money. And, and I think you have to stop and say, wait, actually, the, the purpose, that, that purpose, that money's not lazy. It's providing me the ability to keep doing what I want to do over here. Because sort of intrinsic to all of this is that if you're an entrepreneur, the best possible investment is yourself. I mean, classic Elon Musk style is that you continue to just draw down and, 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 and double down and bet on yourself. Yeah, yeah, and embedded in that is a huge issue you've got to deal with overconfidence and then make sure you're right. <laughs> but but you're willing you're willing to take that response that risk yourself. Does that imply to all levels of scale? Like if if you're a, someone now who's in the gig economy or you're a young person now facing the prospect of never having a normal job, how how do you think about it? Yeah, no, I think the gig economy particularly, like look, if I have um, if I had I just had this conversation with a friend of mine that runs a really small business and I asked him, how do you invest your money? Because I've been testing that question yeah. and he said exactly that in myself. And I said, why? And he said, because there's no rate of return anywhere that can match what I think I can get. Now, you got to be careful about that assumption and question it. Um, but yeah, even on a small scale, like if, if you could, um, let's say that you're just maxed out in terms of the production of the content, you're writing books or you're creating online courses or whatever it is you're doing and you need more time and you look and see like, oh, I could pay somebody $50 an hour to come in and do this. Hmm. Oh, I can't spend that money. And then you think, well, wait, I could turn that 50 into, if you can turn- Because, because your time is worth more than that. Yeah, you just simply say, look, I could turn that $50 into $100. Okay, that, that's an easy calculation to do. That's a 100% return. Hmm. And so then you look over here and say, I've got $50 in my savings account, or I've got $500 in my savings account, my investment account that's so important to me, and it might be, maybe you need to have that buffer, but let's just say you have a free, you have $500 over there and you say to yourself, wait, I could turn that into a thousand. If I just paid this person for 10 hours, I'd be able to do this at $100, I'd turn that into a thousand. That's a massive, now, again, we gotta be careful about that assumption. Right, because you could just be being lazy. Well, yeah, and you could also, <laughs> you, you could also, 50 bucks and, 50 bucks and not turn and it into a thousand. Yeah, not turn it into a thousand, right? Yeah, yeah, so now you lost money on that investment. So you gotta be careful about that. Um, but again, if, if you've got that ability, then you're right. That is the best investment you can make. One thing that concerns me about all of this is that there seems to be a big shift in, in, in the nature of capital and, and who has it in that you know, we're, we're so enamored of the subscription model for everything. You don't need to own your music, you subscribe to it. You don't need to own, buy television shows, you just get you know, Netflix. Uh, you don't need to buy a car. Eventually, you don't need to buy a house. Like, I guess people pay rent, but almost everything in your life could be on subscription. So at that point, do you have a whole generation just hand-to-mouth? You know, they, they're earning a bit of stuff in the gig economy. They don't actually have any assets. It's, it's just, it comes into one hand, and they pay out the subscriptions on the other. 
and you get a massive kind of inequality. Yeah, yeah, but I'm wondering if, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but I don't know that those two are necessarily related, right? Like, if, if the only way they'd be related is if you earn, every time you earn more than your current expenses, you go sign up for a new service, right? Well, and that's not a new problem, right? That's just a different way of taking out the credit card and buying something that you have to pay pay for later. So, um, no, I meant more in the sense that, you know, I guess the the two obvious big sources of capital are buying a, a property which was increasing oh, dramatically yeah. in value. But yeah. in, in a lot of key met- metropolitan markets, they, people just can't buy property anymore. The, the, sure. the, they're either not going to be given finance or they're not going to get a deposit big enough. Yeah. And on the other end of the scale, you know, so much of business now is going to be owning these massive platforms, um, machines, which can automate so many tasks. So the chances of the average person, the average small business owner, owning those 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 sources of value generating capital are becoming slim to none. Yeah. Well I think so if you if you if we go back to the over the wall portfolio, right? We all anybody in the entrepreneurial world starts out a hundred percent in the what I refer to as the A portfolio, right? That's your own efforts. The goal of course we all know that being a hundred percent in any portfolio is a bad idea. The goal, of course, is to slowly start building plenty of the over-the-wall portfolio. And you wake up one day, and hopefully you've gotten to the point like free. You wake up, there's free cash flow, or you have an exit. Right. And with free cash flow or an exit, you start building this other portfolio, and that money becomes the over-the-wall portfolio. And I always, I started learning about this from talking to entrepreneurs, and they would say similar things like, "Oh yeah, you know what? I do that. That's the money I promised my spouse I would never lose. Hmm. Right. That's the money to prevent me from ever having to go back to that foreclosure." eviction notice on the front door that I had to that one time when I was building my first business. So your goal is clearly to get from 100%, you know, zero in the over the wall portfolio, 100% in your entrepreneurial portfolio to shift that at some point. So you wake up one day and go, cool, I got this thing over here. And its entire goal in life is so that I don't ever have to worry and I can keep playing this game. Yeah. I'm not going to use it anymore for the entrepreneur stuff. It's, it's just locked over here. A friend of mine called it his um, financial fortress. Right, so people have put names on this. I just like thinking of it as the over the wall. You chuck it over the wall and you can't see it anymore. Right? And so that's the goal is you build that asset over there. Now maybe that's real estate, but most likely it's liquid, safe, it generates income. It allows you to take longer range bets over here because you can live off of it if you need to, all that sort of stuff. Well, Carl, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Uh, it's been a lot of fun and uh, thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you. It's been fun. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.